and welcome to the first episode of a new podcast that RSL is launching called At War. As the name suggests, we'll be talking about the law of armed conflict and international law generally. In today's episode, we'll be talking about Jammu and Kashmir, a year on from the abrogation of Article 370 when India annexed the territory. Um, and we'll be talking generally also about the Kashmiri fight for self-determination. Our guest today is Asad Rahim Khan. He is a barrister and advocate of the High Court, and he heads the dispute resolution desk at Ashtar Ali LLP. He focuses on litigation, international arbitration, and constitutional law. He's also an adjunct faculty member at LAMS and contributes opinion pieces to John. He previously also assisted with drafting the 25th Amendment to the Constitution. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you so much today. for having me. Thank you. Um, so I just wanted to get the ball rolling by mm -hmm. discussing the events that have taken place since August 5th, 2019. Right. And as an international lawyer, whenever we look at this, we're looking at prior to 5th August 2019 and after, when the occupation turned into an annexation, into an occupation and an annexation. Um, and since then, we've seen that India, through its domicile laws, through its language changes, and through its resettlement of members of its armed forces mm -hmm. and jobs for pundits and Hindus generally, has really acted in furtherance of this objective of annexation. Yes. Um, so do you think that we're going to be looking back at the events of 5th August and looking at them as business as usual or as really a transformative radical step that has changed the nature of the conflict? No, absolutely the, the latter part. I think if you look back at the trajectory of how this issue has evolved um, from the letter that Prime Minister Nehru sent to Prime Minister Liaquat Ali Khan in 1948, in which there's not only an affirmation of the Kashmiri people's right to self-determination, but also a very clear reference uh, to a plebiscite mm -hmm. uh, and that this needs to be resolved. All the way to the four-point plan between General Musharraf and Manmohan Singh, in which again the emphasis was on demilitarization. So between 1948 and 2008, you realize the emphasis is on the fact that, well, the Kashmiri people are in a state of flux and we need to fix this. And we can't fix this in a way that actually consolidates the original sin of occupation. Now, I'm not saying that the Indian government didn't consolidate it on a de facto basis. I'm saying as far as rhetoric or lip service was concerned, there was at least a fundamental acknowledgement that what has happened is unjust. With 5th August 2019, the goalposts have completely shifted. In fact, I would say that the playing field is, is a new one. Uh, we can't even go back to the, to the old metaphors anymore. Uh, I think this was part of the Jana Sangh's manifesto, which then became the BJP, in which Kashmir was always unfinished a business. But from a genetic point of view, from you know a, a racial point of view, from a religious point of view, that this is something that we need to cleanse and make part of a larger Hindutva project. Mm. And this strain of thinking was not respectable. It wasn't even respectable amongst, you know, the more conservative strands of Indian nationalist thought. But now since 2014, when Narendra Modi was elected uh, to a new mandate in 2019, we've seen that that situation has changed. <clears throat> and you can now park 1948 to 2008 in one box and what's happened since 2019 in another. Mm. So... We saw that with Article 370. Special status was always a fig leaf. Um, and just to not, you know, 
uh, get into the nitty-gritty of the subject. But Article 370 accorded a special status to the people of Kashmir, which again is an acknowledgement that the situation has not been resolved. And it can be resolved pursuant to a further plebiscite as mandated in the United Nations resolutions, which we'll get into uh, later. Once you scrap that, you cut to the core of the fact that this fig leaf is also gone now and that the Kashmiri people have to be subsumed, not into a larger Indian project, but into a larger Hindutva neo-fascist one. And we'll get into the ideological connotations of that, I think, later on. Mm. And I just wanted to touch on the entire ideology behind this movement, mm -hmm. because we have a lot of people striking the analogy with Israel. So you have right. Robert Fisk in one of his last articles doing the same thing, saying that there are Israeli fingerprints all over this plan. Yes. Um, and we also see, you know, much closer ties between India and Israel after Modi came into office. Um, and the idea that yes, we're going to try and promote this similarly to the Palestinian cause as as a fight for self-determination. And yet, on the other hand, we have Israelis, um, the Israeli analogy of that they're, they're treating it very much like Palestine. Do you think that that is accurate, that analogy? Well, let me put it this way. Kashmir and Palestine are materially different. The situation is also materially different. But I will say that Robert Fisk, the late lamented Robert Fisk, is absolutely right to the extent that there is a reason that what India is doing in Palestine, in Kashmir is being referred to as the West Bank formula. Uh, you are now trying to relocate non-Kashmiri um, Hindu settlers and trying to implement demographic change. Uh, at the core of the Israeli apartheid project, there is a very real demographic anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I find it so surprising that that anxiety is now being translocated to India, which shouldn't have that much of a demographic issue, but is instead now bulldozing it through um, in occupied Kashmir. So that's the first limb, which is that you can compare the Israeli apartheid project to the Indian annexation with regards to how you are actually trying to do genetic engineering, which I think to any person with even the slightest conscience is 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 a lived nightmare. Uh, the second limb is, well, what is the nature of the occupation itself? Uh, and George, you know, you're the international lawyer, you know better as far as domicile laws are concerned, as far as language is concerned, uh, as far as the ownership of land is concerned. Um, the very nature of annexation is now being transmuted to actual laws uh, on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's that's what comes to mind, really. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And similarly, um, so yeah, one of the most worrying things as an international lawyer is to look at this demographic reconstruction and um, the idea that we keep on pushing forward that, you know, the Kashmiris are people and they have the right to self-determination and the, the attempt really to break down the notion of people by being like, oh no, they're not as affiliated with the territory because if we have all of these other people, look, we have, we're undermining their language by adding Hindi as an official language. Mm. And also I think... Um, the delegitimizing de of the movement. So we see Israel doing the same with Hamas and being like Hamas is a terrorist group and mm -hmm. that's who we're going after. And similarly, um, India arguing that there is no homegrown insurgency, right? In Kashmir, they're saying that these are terrorists and right. they're kind of piggybacking off the global war on terror and being like, we need to have the right to respond to terrorist attacks in our territory. Um, 
Do you think that given the waning of support and momentum behind the war on terror, we're 20 years into it now, we've seen how the US and Taliban have just struck a deal in Afghanistan. Um, do you think that that support is waning? Do you think that there is going to be a shift in that narrative and how well it plays? Absolutely. I think this was always such a, a convenient narrative to incorporate everywhere. And I think it not only has failed from a rhetorical and conceptual standpoint, it's no longer relevant. I think in 2001, it was easier um, for a world that was just, you know, taken over by that, you know, 9-11 fear. Uh, what do we do? This is, although terrorism, you know, is really an ancient form of violence. Mm -hmm. uh, but post-September 11th, there was, I think, a renewed urgency uh, as to how do we deal with this. Um, and I think the state that practiced it maybe as cynically as India was, again, Israel. So there'll be gratuitous comparisons between Iran and ISIS mm. or Hamas and ISIS or Iran and Hamas. Now, they have nothing to do with each other. Uh, you know, one's a hardline organization that nonetheless gets elected in, in Palestine. One's a theocracy. Um, the third is, if you forgive me for saying, but a group of, you know, drug addled zombies. Uh, you can't make an overarching comparison and lump them under, you know, people affiliated with Islam who are violent. And that is what India has done. Um, and I don't think it's been very successful at it. What I will say though, and I think every, I think every single discussion of, of uh, Hindutva regime oppression still needs to factor in Pakistan's own mistakes. Um, and for us to maybe not understand the distinction between what is a legitimate freedom movement with the core emphasis being self-determination is entirely distinct from Pakistani state interests. Mm. Uh, and I don't know who needs to hear that. This is a cause for the self-determination of the Kashmiri people. To the extent that Pakistan's interests dovetail with that core cause, well and good. But to the extent that it sort of gets away from that uh, and might justify the, the Indian narrative of, oh, this, there's external support, I think we're doing the Kashmiri people a disfavor. Mm. Um, and the emphasis needs to be on centering Kashmiri voices, yeah. not on, you know, oh, how do we get these people to accede to Pakistan? Mm. They accede to Pakistan if they choose to. Uh, but anyway, just to circle back to uh, what you said, uh, what you said initially, I think it's getting very, very difficult for India to keep on, f you know, fomenting that same terrorist narrative. Uh, mm. I think it's over. I think with Pulwama, we saw completely homegrown elements. You look at Burhan Wani. Yeah. Uh, you look at the person in Pulwama also, um, to call him a militant or a terrorist or whatever, you arrest him. You torture him. There are every story, every Kashmiri household is replete with a story about how we've been attached to trucks, about how rape is used as a weapon of war, about how uh, the most sadistic torturers are actually receiving awards for gallantry. Uh, and to say that in the nature of that, and in the nature of imminent demographic change, this insurgency isn't homegrown, I think it's an Indian conceit that people from within the Indian deep state, from within national security organizations have conceded that we are losing the Kashmiri people. Um, the terrorism narrative doesn't work. I will again add though, 
that Pakistan needs to focus on the self-determination aspect. Mm. And I think it's really relevant to talk about the Kashmiri people here because, I mean, Absolutely. we are two Pakistanis talking about the Kashmiri people. They're not present. They're not present in a lot of these discussions, which is definitely a problem. Um, but in terms of representation by Kashmiri politicians and political parties, we've also seen a lot of criticism of them as being very pro-India. Um, and um, where then do we get a legitimate representative government, really, that we can all back, that has that kind of widespread support? Because I kind of feel like when it comes to Kashmir, we also have the same problem that you always have with homegrown insurgency like that, which is you have a common enemy, but you don't have a common vision for the future. But even in some parties in Kashmir, you don't even have the common enemy because they're they're very pro-India. Um, so then where would that come from? Like, where would we see that coming from? And, and which voices do we amplify as really representative of the Kashmiri people? Well, with, you know, with great respect, I think I might slightly disagree with the framing of that question. Okay. I don't think there's any authentic Kashmiri leader that's pro-India. And mm. the, I think the ladies and gentlemen that you are referring to can't really be put in slots of pro and anti because okay. that would imply that Kashmir is some sort of, you know, thriving autonomous region. It isn't. It never was. The people that were foisted upon them, mm. excuse the expression, were quizlings. They mm. always have been. Right. They were minor functionaries who were elevated to, with the, with the exception of, I think, the Abdullahs who were who somehow were able to subordinate the interests of their own people to what eventually became mass murder and mass rape. So I, I think that when the history of Kashmir is written, uh, the house of Abdullah might form its darkest chapter, purely in terms of how, well, you know, we might be getting away from, <laughs> we might be getting away from your question, but purely in terms of how you were able to subvert the core interests of your own people, um, and create a lived nightmare for them, generation by generation. Mm. Sheikh Abdullah, Farooq Abdullah, Umar Abdullah. It's never ending. So you right. not only have Quislings, you have Quisling dynasts <laughs> uh, with the support of the Indian state behind them. Yeah. And to cry crocodile tears when you now see the Hindutva project in full form, doing exactly what it was saying it would over the past 50 years. This is what's surprising to me. Uh, for the same satellite leaders to now express their dismay, to express their shock and horror at what's happening. And this is not a conceit that's limited to the Abdullahs. It extends to the Muftis. Mm -hmm. It extends to you know, the, the smaller parties that are in and out of New Delhi. Uh, for them to express their consternation, please open up uh, all of these Saffron parties' manifestos going back generations. They've been saying they're going to do this. They just never got the chance. So. Uh, to come back to your question, these people were never Kashmir's authentic representatives. They were the bagman for Indian interests in the valley. Mm. That situation has changed. Um, we are seeing a very angry, um, and rightly so, um, a very furious, young, middle-class segment of Kashmiri representatives who... Um, when given the opportunity, uh, and they are emerging everywhere, speak up for the people of Kashmir as authentic voices and not as Indian supplements. Right, yeah, yeah. I also then wanted to wanted to also ask you about the... So we've just... Um, 
found out about the massive disinformation campaign that has been going on for 15 years, um, targeting mm. the EU, targeting the Human Rights Council. So you've had all of these UN side events and they focus on minority rights issues. Um, one thing that the report didn't mention and that you find out when you go back and read these Human Rights Council sessions is that what these NGOs also did, these fake zombie NGOs yes. uh, that were then amplified, was that they focused also on the Kashmiri Pandit issue. And they did that to try and undermine any person who was there for the Jammu and Kashmir right to self-determination and to say that this is the main issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even then, we don't see much traction gained by that kind of a narrative. No. Why do you think that is? Well, I think uh, from the very outset, the proportion, uh, the Kashmiri Pandit issue uh, has always been, and, and by, uh, by the way, I think... Um, you can't be glib about it. You can't be glib about the plight of any minority, um, any religious minority anywhere. Um, And I think people on our side have that tendency. But if for one second we were just to look at the sheer proportion of scattered incidents where many Kashmiri pundits have been resettled uh, and where the coverage accorded to them is incredibly disproportionate, now, you compare that to the 7 million, is it 7 million, Kashmiris yeah. who are under siege. There's no other word for it. They're under siege. They're not being allowed to bury their young with these, you know, false uh, attributions to coronavirus. Uh, we've gone through brutality, torture, electric shocks, as in people who have actually investigated this on the ground. Really, it's it's... It's barbaric. I don't think there's any other word for it. We know that. and We don't need to get into it. Um, But to put them on the same pedestal, I think, has more or less delegitimized India's own narrative. Uh, And for that same reason, despite having such a massive disinformation campaign at their backs, you must have seen that the Kashmiri Pandit issue was not given that much traction, despite so much artificial push. Um, Mm. And for the exact same reason that when you fire a rocket into Israel, which is made up of the world's most amateurish tubes, um, there would be Israeli conservatives saying that this took a massive toll on their pets. <laughs> yeah, This is yeah. actually on record. It's crazy. Uh, and this is happening when um, the amount of ballast or the amount of air power that Israel is dropping on the people of Gaza yeah is something that they analogize with mowing the lawn, i.e. we have to get rid of layers and layers of, mm-hmm. of, of what is essentially a Palestinian demographic. Yeah. So you compare what their pets are going through to what they're going through, draw that over into Kashmir, where the issue of Kashmiri pundits, many of whom are resettled and nobody is being glib about the problem, compare that to what has essentially become a consistent series of war crimes against millions of people in a state of occupation, there's no parity, regardless of what you want to do. I will say this, though, uh, that for such a massive, concerted disinformation campaign, where is Pakistan in all this? Mm. And and I will give it to our, you know, right wing (laughs) for coining uh, fifth generation hybrid warfare. All the liberals pointed and laughed and said 10th generation, 11th generation. I'm saying they're right. Hmm. But if they were right, what did they do with that knowledge? Beyond, you know, Twitter hashtags. 
if right. there is such a concerted and elaborate campaign which is destabilizing pakistan's interests and it is now manifest that there was one i'm not saying that pakistan fight disinformation with disinformation but if on one end there are un accredited organizations that are targeting you in the most sensitive areas possible if your response is to you know a hashtag you know pakistan wins forever 2050 <laughs> it's not yeah. cutting it yeah. it's not cutting it and i think i think we're under equipped yeah i mean i i agree with you there i think that um there is definitely culpability on the part of the human rights council and the eu for allowing these brokers absolutely absolutely um but similarly with pakistan 15 year effort and it went unabated and unchecked and yes. we didn't know about it um i think that's terrible too i'm glad that you you went back onto the israel point because i kind of wanted to pick up on that in terms of the indian relations with the gulf um so we see of uh, you know close ties with india and saudi uh we see them again with india and the uae and it's very frustrating for pakistan because even though we're getting these organizational islamic cooperation resolutions passed about jammu and kashmir they don't really get published they don't get circulated by the oic and it's because these gulf countries really do want to keep india on side and we see that again with with you know arab ties with israel um so where what does pakistan do with those relations i mean i feel like pakistan is really i mean it's in the same camp as it is iran where it doesn't really have the close friendship in terms of trade ties that it would want um but how how does it combat that well that goes a bit beyond loaded uh, question <laughs> no no not a loaded question but it goes a bit beyond my territory i think for that you would need some very serious foreign policy analysts um that a random constitutional lawyer might not be able to <laughs> might not be able to fill you in on i do think though that it goes back to well are you an economically robust self sufficient state uh and i think until pakistan's soft power until its economic self sufficiency doesn't go beyond by various dimensions then i think we will be beholden to other forces like this um and you know the economists can tell you this better but i think we need a fundamental realtering of how we perceive ourselves in the world for the last 70 years or so pakistan has tried to extract rents from its geography and that has been the pith and substance of what it chose to do in the neighborhood what do you mean yeah uh, what i mean is that you saw this with the frontline war with afghanistan you saw this with the oh. soviet union okay, okay. you saw this before with ceto and cento um again i've waded off into territory that i'm really not <laughs> as you can tell <laughs> um really not adequately informed about but until the state of pakistan continues to view itself in such a limited prism as far as industry is concerned economy is concerned soft power is concerned perception is concerned mm. until it is limited to somehow pushing a rentier economy for a very narrow elite where your unique selling point is again geographic rents we won't be able to compete mm. in a way that is productive in a way that you know is able to combat un accredited disinformation organizations so there needs to be a fundamental reordering of how pakistanis perceive their position in the world and i think we have to create value yeah yeah okay 
So coming then to a constitutional question. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you about the Ram Temple. So um, there used to be at least this pretense of a secularist India, um, and that's enshrined in its constitution as well. So how much do um, incidents like the Ram Temple undermine this and work against this? Well, I, I think um, what we're seeing next door is, is now officially the fourth Reich. Ram Temple is a high point. It's mm. a high. It's a high watermark, uh, and I think. I think if historical revisionism can actually become a part of your, you know, individual neurosis, uh, you get something like Ram Temple, mm. where thousands of people, led by L. K. Advani, tear down a mosque, with no empirical data to substantiate. Um, that there was a mandir where a masjid used to be. I know they have that one archaeological survey that an organization that was completely subordinate to the BJP decided to say, oh yes, we saw some fragments of a oh. temple or something. And that also, by the way, has been completely rebutted by independent archaeologists. The fact that I'm seeing this is absurd. Yeah. Uh, because to have to delve into thousands of years of history and bring up archaeological fragments from one side to the other doesn't take away from the fact that Mr. Advani was pointing bows and arrows from Somnath Temple to uh, Babri Masjid. And he says in his book that this is part of a lineage of Muslim aggression. Mm. So from Somnath all the way to wow. uh, Babri. Uh, it's, it's essentially just pure, unadulterated Hindutva hatred. Mm. And this has nothing to do with Hinduism. Uh, it's it's again it's a it's a subset of European fascism that somehow made its way here through gentlemen like Savarkar and Advani and now it's you know latest formulation with uh, with um, with Narendra Modi. So no, absolutely not. I think if you get into just how it was demolished with weeks and weeks of people rehearsing, mm. there's nothing spontaneous about it, nothing historical about it. Nothing socio-intellectual about it. It was an act of terror, and that is what it accomplished. The fact that it is now the core selling point uh, of Mr. Modi's regime, I think, is, is quite disturbing. Um, I disagree with the premise that India was meant to be a secular country. I think as early as Indira and Sanjay, when they were trying to force sterilize the poor, uh, which was a euphemism for Muslims, it lost its secular sheen quite a while back. Uh, that it would actively reject it though and repudiate it for something like this, for a neo-fascist variant, um, I, I think that's quite disturbing. Mm. I agree. Um, thank you so much for thank agreeing you. to be thank our first um, guest on thank the podcast. Thank um, so thank you for tuning in as well. Uh, we hope that you'll tune into future sessions. We're going to be talking about uh, nuclear law, emerging tech, in armed conflict, and many other interesting issues. So thank you.